Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth, and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Beloved, whenever Jesus is in the house, men are going to be challenged to look at their own lives. And then they need to make that determination whether to repent or rebel. And we really only have one of two choices. You see, when Jesus is truly in the house, you cannot be non-committal. Jesus demands an answer, and he wasn't going to leave without causing the people of Nazareth to weigh their hearts and to take an account of their faith. Have you ever been driving down the road and you come to a dead end? All of a sudden, we have a decision to make. We have no choice. We must go one way or the other. Today with Pastor David, we will learn the same is true when Jesus is in the house. He will demand all of us to decide which way we will turn. Which road will we take? Will we be swayed by the ways of the world? Or will we trust him to lead us down the right path? He would say, look for the light and go towards it. Now here's Pastor David with part one of today's message entitled, Jesus is in the House. get into the study this morning. I've been pastor of Calvary Chapel since 1991. Go ahead, do the math. That's about 23 years, okay? We've been here. We, we started the church as a Bible study, as a home Bible study, and the Lord has blessed it through the years in different ways as we've met in different places. But I've served the Lord. My, my wife, Tot, and I, we have served the Lord in a variety of different places. Throughout the Phoenix area, we served in various churches. We even served in a church in Las Vegas and for a while in Kansas City, uh, even up in Sedona and in Sierra Vista before the Lord brought us here to Casa Grande. After coming to Christ at the age of 17, around my senior year in high school, It wasn't too long before I felt the call of the Lord on my life. I was raised in a Christian home. We were involved in church nearly all of my life. And so when I finally made that commitment to Christ, it wasn't long before, again, that call of Christ was on my life. And my wife, Tot, got me my first church job, okay? Her church down in South Phoenix needed a worship leader. I couldn't play any instrument, but I was loud enough that I could lead in the song singing. And so I went down there and served as their worship leader. But from there, we went to various and assorted other places. I've I've moved from a worship leader to a youth leader, from a Sunday school teacher to the adult education director. I've been a board member at churches, and I've been an assistant pastor at several different churches. I've been the custodian, and now I'm serving as a senior pastor. 
The churches that I've served in have been both denominational as well as non-denominational. They ranged in, in everything from charismatic, I mean, they, they were downright Pentecostal, to uh, all the way to Reformed evangelical type churches and everything in between. The government of various churches that I've been in have been everything from congregational-led, where the congregation voted on whether the secretary could buy a new stapler or not, to the point of uh, some churches that are elder-led and uh, even pastoral-led. In all of these things, in all of this wide range of events, just want you to know, don't get excited. This isn't my swan song. I'm not about to leave. What I wanted to do is is share with you just kind of a quick snapshot of the ministries and of the Christian experience that I've had, just to let you know that in all of these positions, in all of these church fellowships, through all the differences actually of theology and doctrine and church government, there have been multiples of times during church worship experiences and during the teaching of the word where I felt the Lord's presence so powerfully, I felt that I could just reach out and touch his face. It was that powerful. And some of you know exactly what I mean because it's happened to you. But you also know that it doesn't always happen that way. Because there's also been multiple times in all of those positions, in all of those church fellowships, through all the differences of theology and and doctrine and church governments that, well, frankly, I just wondered if the Lord even showed up that day. And some of you know exactly what I mean with that too. And unfortunately, yeah, that even includes here. The meeting's over, the message is finished, the last song is sung and We walk out the door feeling not much different than we did when we came in the door. And the sad thing is, is as a pastor, I understand that in the overall experience of the church today, there's more times in that latter category than there is in the former. Well, today we're going to look at two, well, church meetings. They're synagogue meetings, but for sake of our day, let's just look. There's two church meetings we're going to look at today where Jesus did show up. And the response of those two different congregations is totally different. And as Jesus came and he, and he ministered in two different synagogues, we see a major difference in how the people responded to the fact that Jesus was in the house. If you would, have with you, your Bibles turned to the gospel according to Luke in chapter 4. We're going to pick up in our verse-by-verse study there in Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up again where we left off last week in, in verse 16. In verse 16, we read this. And so he, speaking of Jesus, so Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now that was last week's message, but it still holds just as true today. As his custom was, on that Sabbath day, he would be at synagogue. What is the custom of your life? What's the pattern of your life? Not the habit, but the pattern and the custom of your life. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
And then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Standard Sabbath day practice would be they would come for times of worship, times of prayer. There would always be the reading of the Shema and actually reciting of the whole congregation to hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the, the Lord is one. And a whole passage there in Deuteronomy and some in Exodus that they would repeat all together. There would also be a reading from the, from the Pentateuch, the Old Testament book of the laws, the first five books of the, your Bible. But then there would also be a reading from the prophets, That would be the normal time. And then there would be a a teaching time, follow those readings, a a lesson from one of the scriptures. And synagogues very early on had developed this pattern of every synagogue, every synagogue would be reading the same passage every Sabbath day. As a matter of fact, some churches do that today. Uh, Some denominations do that today. Uh, In that denomination, whatever church that you go to within that denomination, they're preaching on the same passage of scripture. We don't do that. When Jesus got up to read, it would probably, when he read, that would have probably been the last reading of the day because, number one, he's reading there in the book of Isaiah, one of the prophets, but he's also going to share from that time. Now, we don't know if the passage that he read was the selected passage of the day or not. There's just no way for us to be able to really tell that. But you know what? For me, it would figure for me that God could orchestrate that, that down through the years, he had set this pattern up long before that Sabbath morning when Jesus was going to be in his home church there in Nazareth, so that by the time it finally got to that day at that place with that man reading it, it would be from Isaiah chapter 61. And so as the Isaiah scroll was given to Jesus, he goes to the passage which was to be read that day, and it was from Isaiah 61. The passage that he read was a messianic passage. He didn't read the whole passage. He only read a portion of it. The balance of the passage actually deals with the second coming of Messiah. But this one here deals with the fact of the damage of sin to all of mankind and the healing and the deliverance work of Messiah for mankind. The Messiah would come to preach the gospel to the poor, is what Isaiah, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Humanity has been beaten down by the enemy of our souls. Mankind spiritually bankrupt, absolutely no chance of saving themselves. When Messiah comes, he's going to proclaim the gospel, the good news of redemption, the good news of salvation available through him. In eternity, the poor in spirit will have full access to the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah says that the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to come to heal the brokenhearted. You know, it's amazing to me, but but sin offers so much and yet it takes everything. The world and the flesh and the devil, they make promises that they can never completely fulfill. And they leave the sinner broken and and brokenhearted due to the consequences of the sin. Messiah comes to heal the brokenhearted. Isaiah tells us also that he comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. Why? Because sin has ensnared us. It's condemned all of fallen humanity with a judgment of eternal damnation. And man outside of Christ is condemned and all of humanity 
is condemned with a judgment of that same condemnation. Outside of Christ, we're captive, we're chained, we're already destined for execution. Mankind, as the word says, is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But through Messiah, captives are set free. Isaiah tells us also that Christ comes to recover the sight to the blind. Another aspect of sin is the blindness that it brings, spiritual blindness. Man in his sin, he can't even see the truth. He can't even see the glory of God because sin has brought in such deep blindness. And it's only as the Lord comes and opens the eyes of the spiritually blind that they can even begin to comprehend the truth and the glory and the grace and the mercy and the majesty and the splendor and the sacrifice and the forgiveness of Almighty God only through the work of God in our lives. Messiah also comes as the one who brings liberty. Oppression of any kind just absolutely robs our soul of the fullness of freedom, that, that completeness of joy that should be ours. The oppression of the evil one weighs down the sinner's heart and burdens the very being. When Christ obtained the victory over sin and death, he was the one who loosed the chains of the oppressor. And when he declared it's finished as he hung on the cross that day, he made the way available to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And now here in this little synagogue in Nazareth, the hometown boy comes in declaring the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes were fixed right on him. I think it was a major silence at that point. Wow, here's the hometown kid. He's gonna share the word with us. He's going to speak about Messiah coming. Oh, how exciting that is. We all long for Messiah to come back again. And they're sitting there and they're ready to hear what he has to give them. No doubt they were expecting Jesus to give this great, this powerful teaching of the promised one of God and the hope that was going to come with his soon coming. Thing is, is his exposition of the scripture ended up being very short, but very much to the point. Verse 21 says that he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I, I think it's interesting that Luke says he began to say to him. Makes me think that he wanted to say more, but just by those words that he said, it caused such a reaction, he didn't get to finish his whole sermon. He began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness of him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And then they said, wait a minute, this is Joseph's kid. Don't, don't be confused. They understood what Jesus said. He was reading a messianic passage. And he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wait a minute. We've seen you grow up here in this community. We've seen you play as a child. We've seen you play with our children. We've seen you grow up. We've seen you working uh, there as, as your father, quote unquote, Joseph, was teaching you the carpentry trade. And you're saying you're the Messiah? How can this be? Aren't you Joseph's son? The problem is they fully understood what Jesus read and what his follow-up comment was declaring. And here in his hometown synagogue, 
Jesus was declaring himself to be Messiah. Now, Jesus understood that that didn't sit real well with everybody. As a matter of fact, verse 23 says that he, Jesus, said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard you do in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. I'm just wondering, as Jesus said, this day, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. Suddenly the silence was broken and suddenly mumbling was all across the congregation. Men speaking to each other, women who weren't supposed to speak in the synagogue at all, whispering to each other, wondering. Or maybe it was simply because we know that Jesus knew the hearts of all mankind. So he says, you know what? You're going to come up to me and you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. You're probably going to be asking me, well, why aren't you doing the same works here that you did up in Capernaum? You see, Luke doesn't give us the whole layout. There's some events that had already taken place in Jesus' life before he got to that synagogue in Nazareth. Consider the wedding of Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. Consider some of the other things that happened during that time. Jesus had already been ministering to the people. And he says, you're going to be wondering why I'm not doing the same work here among you that I did up at Capernaum. Beloved, whenever Jesus is in the house, men are going to be challenged to look at their own lives. And then they need to make that determination whether to repent or rebel. And we really only have one of two choices. You see, when Jesus is truly in the house, you cannot be non-committal. Jesus demands an answer, and he wasn't going to leave without causing the people of Nazareth to weigh their hearts and to take an account of their faith. Beloved, suddenly and without warning, church that day became much more than just a social gathering. Jesus continued to press the point. Listen to what he says in verse 25. He continues on. He says, I tell you truly, there were many widows who were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the land of Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleaned or cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When Jesus is in the house, faith or the lack of it is clearly revealed. Jesus brings these two events from the Old Testament testimony of the people of Israel. Again, Elijah coming to the woman there during the famine, the woman of Zarephath. You know what? She was a Gentile woman. She wasn't a Jew. Weren't there anyone in Israel that was starving? Wasn't there anyone in Israel that was being affected by the famine? Absolutely. But God moved from Israel and ministered to this Gentile woman, I believe, in a response of of, of bringing out jealousy to Israel because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of dependence upon God. And he brings out the story of Elisha that, again, Naaman coming to him filled with leprosy. And Naaman got healed of his leprosy. Well, weren't there lepers in Israel at that point in time, Jesus is saying? Yes, there definitely was. But again, it was a matter of faith that the people of Israel were not depending upon God in every aspect of their lives. And so again, the the work done on Naaman was hopefully to spur them on to jealousy, to respond back in faith. But the problem is, is the jealousy 
didn't lead to any kind of repentance. And just as right here in the synagogue in Nazareth happened, so it happened in Israel. Here in this synagogue, their jealousy of what Jesus is reminding them of, of the events of the Old Testament where God was blessing Gentiles instead of the Israelites, their jealousy led to wrath. And that was because of the coldness of their hearts, because of the blindness of their souls. And we know that because we see beginning in verse 28. And so a couple of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Is that what it says? Yeah, all of them. All of them. Not one or two got ticked off. The entire meeting got ticked off. All of the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built and that they might throw him down over the cliff. When you look at this passage, I kind of wonder how many preachers preach messages that get their congregation so mad they want to kill them. Well, fortunately, this hasn't happened to me yet. The message isn't over yet today. But right now, if you can even begin to grasp the, the, the anger and the rage of these men. I don't think an anger management class was going to do them any good at this point in time. It was absolute chaos. It was, it was mob rule. And no doubt the men were screaming and the women were probably wailing and crying as again they kept pushing Jesus toward the edge of that cliff. And again, all of them coming against him. You need to understand though that it wasn't his claim of messiahship that brought about such rage. What brought about such rage was that he challenged their faith. He brought a challenge to their faith, and in essence, he was saying, you know, the Gentiles have more faith than you do. And as I've said before, when Jesus is in the house, you cannot be on the sidelines. He won't allow it. You're either going to be for him or against him. And here, it would seem that the house was against him, even to the point of pushing him out of the synagogue out of the church. How many churches today have pushed Christ out of the church because it's too convicting to preach the cross. It's too convicting to preach Christ. Oh, but I can preach on how to have a full and meaningful life. I can give you 12 points of how to deal with your children or your spouse. We can do a multitude of things, but don't preach the cross to me. Don't preach Christ crucified for my sin. That becomes offensive. Too many churches have pushed Christ out of the meeting here in this synagogue. They pushed him out even to the point of trying to bring him to death, to silence his message, to remove the challenge to their faith, and, and to, to, to quiet that conviction of their souls. But you know what? It wasn't the Father's time for Jesus' silence. And so it says there in verse 30, then passing through the midst of them he went his way. We don't know how that happened. We don't know if it's a miracle or what, but let's just Say, he went through them. He didn't. It was not time for him to be cast off the cliff. From Nazareth, Jesus now, he takes his short journey eastward to those northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, to the city of Capernaum. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, we read, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. There's a lot we could say about Capernaum. Uh, it becomes the, the ministry center for Jesus during most of his ministry time. We're not going to look at that today. We'll deal with it as we go on through Luke. Open our hearts, change. 
hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard today is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We meet Saturday evenings and twice on Sunday morning, as well as throughout the week. For more information about when we meet for worship, including driving directions, log on to theopenword.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now here's Tracy with some more important information about how you can help support The Open Word. Radio programs like The Open Word are wonderful tools that God uses to advance His kingdom here on earth. And as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. Today's broadcast was professionally produced, and God has given us a vision to see The Open Word expand into other parts of the world. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word? Log on to TheOpenWord.com and simply click on the support option to help us continue to grow. Thanks, Tracy. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in, and may God richly bless you.